Hello, and welcome to There Are Other Ways, conversations about living life a little differently. I'm Fiona Bowers, a brand storyteller for thoughtful creatives and ethical entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Sass Petherick, who helps humans with self-doubt, in other words, pretty much all of us, to cultivate self-belief. Her master's MA was a deep study into self-doubt, and I don't think there's anyone who knows more about this universal human experience than she does. There's so much really useful and helpful stuff in this interview, and I really hope you get as much out of it as I did. Hi, Sass. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm so well. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on my podcast. Not a problem. I can talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> Good. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about it because um, I think the work that you do is just so incredible and so necessary. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this. Cool. Perfect. Right. So um, to get started, um, perhaps you could just introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are and what you do um, and how you are living life a little differently. Sure, sure. Happy to. So I'm Sass Petherick and I was made in New Zealand, uh, but I live in (laughs) Bristol in the UK. And my work is about helping people to transcend self-doubt, sort of navigate through the the ickiness of self-doubt. And uh, I have found that it has been a well-worn path for me and uh, I went back and uh, sort of retrained uh, in my late 30s as a, as a coach and I ended up doing a master's degree in uh, coaching and mentoring and my dissertation topic was a, a deep study into the experience of self-doubt and uh, that has really informed my work and so my my coaching practice is really about uh, helping people to to navigate through the murky waters of self-doubt through workshops and group coaching programs. I work with uh, a few people one-to-one and I run retreats as well so um, yeah it's pretty cool. Uh, So I guess I'm I'm living life a little differently because uh, I, I spent the first half of my working life really in in offices in a very corporate environment I was a a management consultant which nobody really knows what that is including management (laughs) consultants Uh, but I basically helped organizations to go through complex changes Uh, so if they were uh, letting a team go or merging with another organization I was sort of in charge of making sure that all happened super swimmingly and uh, seamlessly uh, which was a really interesting um, experience of looking at change and the theories behind change and when I when I decided to um, to move away from that work I've really sort of moved into a much more personal and for me quite meaningful version of change which is that which we go through ourselves so so yeah I'm, I'm operating out of the spare room in our in our house and um, running a tiny global empire from here and it feels um, feels really quite incredible to me and um I I love it I love my work amazing so I guess the first question really then is why self-doubt why did you choose to focus on self-doubt so much it kind of found me to be honest um Faye I I have spent most of my life um feeling like ambition and success particularly external trappings of success 
were really important. And that's kind of how you became an adult. That's how you knew you were doing okay in the world. And so I had really chased that, uh, that those uh, validations that come from other people and from managers and, and all of that stuff. And I wasn't really that interested in my internal experience of that. It was, it was kind of like my security came from, you know, the numbers like my salary and what was on the scale and uh, my bonus, um, the size of my bonus. So I had spent a long time with with this way of being in the world that was probably quite uh, superficial in lots of ways, but but incredibly satisfying as well. Like I really loved solving problems and helping businesses and organisations to to kind of develop and grow their people and, and see where that led us when we went through a big change. It always felt quite, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie in a, in a change project because it's always a temporary piece of work. So I loved that part of it. But I'd also had this kind of creeping sense that something wasn't okay and that perhaps there was more to this experience of being a grown-up than I was really allowing myself to experience. And uh, I uh, lost my mum really suddenly. She died at 53 um, very quickly with no warning. And it sort of sent me into a bit of a tailspin. And uh, about a year after that, my marriage ended very suddenly again. And so I lost these two kind of pillars, that these two really important people that I had used as the kind of anchors to who I was. And I found myself kind of floating around going, well, who the hell am I? And what am I supposed to do? And what's it all about? And I spent a long time just feeling very kind of confused and unmoored is really the word I would Mm. use and threw myself back into work because I didn't really know how else to be. But self-doubt has, I recognize now, been this this kind of thread that has woven right through my life story and I have always felt like a bit of an outsider I've always felt like I didn't quite fit in Uh, and I've always uh, I think looked to other people to help me to feel good about myself Uh, and when I um, when I eventually left the corporate world it was because I had a a really bad stress burnout breakdown breakthrough whatever we we want to call it Uh, and I I kind of had to leave for the sake of my own mental health and in in that time in that sort of um, in that time of not having a job not having an identity that was attached to work I I really sort of fell apart in that space because I didn't really know who I was unless I was producing, performing, uh, being really productive. And I found that that through the work with a therapist that this common thread of who am I when I am in a place of psychological risk, i.e. trying to be myself in a world that has lots of rules and ideas about who we are meant to be, who I am in those moments was kind of defining me and the way that I was responding to, to those, uh, to those psychological risks of wanting to do something that would perhaps go against the grain is that I would deflect and defer anything that felt too risky. So I was an incredibly practiced people pleaser and I would work super hard to make sure that no one was ever disappointed in me. And that helped me to feel safe. And it was really through understanding that and then looking 
um, looking at how that had played out in my life and had really uh, kept me in quite a small box uh, emotionally and um, and I guess from a kind of psychological growth perspective. Um, I, I was living quite a small life, but from the outside looking in, it seemed like quite a big successful life. And so that paradox really just sat with me in a and a lot of there was a lot of discomfort around that, and I realised that I needed to change quite a lot, and that felt really overwhelming. Um, but I did uh, very slowly and piece by piece. I kind of put myself back together, and I found that my dreams for corporate stardom had sort of disappeared, and, and I was really interested in well, what comes next? If I'm if if not that, then what? And I found coaching and it felt like I was going home. It was such a weirdly instant kind of love at first sight experience for me. And uh, and then I, I sort of carried on with it and sort of trusted the path, which has always felt uh, quite frightening to do, uh, mm-hmm. to not have a script to follow because when you're in the corporate world, you, you actually have people that are on the next rung on the ladder and you get to see exactly what you need to do and who you need to be to get there. And when you're working for yourself, when you're doing something that doesn't have a script, you kind of have to make it all up as you go along and trust where you're going. Yeah. So um, so when I went back to uh, university eventually, I uh, went to Oxford Brooks to their coaching and mentoring um, faculty and did a two-year master's degree uh, one of the lecturers that I was working with asked me what my experience had been of coaching and I said I thought that it was about getting increasingly comfortable with ambiguity and she said that would make a really great dissertation topic and I thought hmm I'm gonna sit with that <laughs> and when I really looked at what was the ambiguity it was about self-doubt making peace with that on some level and being okay with things being imperfect and me not pleasing everybody and me being willing to take some some risks and some chances for the sake of my own development for the sake of my own or creating a life that felt really good to me Uh, and so so I dove in and and it was really through the the academic rigor rigor um, combined with my own experience, really helped me to kind of understand more about this really quite fascinating phenomenon of self-doubt. That is, it, it is very difficult to pin down. Like we kind of know when we're experiencing it, mm. um, but describing our experience of it, putting words to it, uh, is is actually quite tricky. And so um, that has really helped me to kind of. Uh, as I've been working with more and more people around this over the last sort of five years, uh, it's really helped me to understand it uh, quite quite deeply. And so my my mission now is to really help to to share the tools that I have and to help particularly women um, to to overcome or to navigate through their self doubt to let it uh, to let it be there but not be in the driver's seat. Amazing. I think it's so interesting because what you've just said is obviously incredibly personal and incredibly specific to you, your story, but there's so many common touch points in it. Like I think a lot of people listening will identify with a lot of what you've said. And I think that 
it's something that really kind of unites all of us, like self-doubt. I think it's a it's an experience and a feeling that a lot of people can, you know, instantly know what you're talking about when you say it. Mm. Yeah, I found that it is a, a universal human experience. And um and I think there there is a lot of research around this from a from a kind of therapeutic perspective uh this my dissertation was the first time we'd looked at it from a coaching perspective because of course coaching is a new body of work that's Mm. being developed um and so I found it was quite interesting when you look at it because coaching is more focused towards folks who are emotionally functioning where you know kind of going from good to great whereas therapy tends to be working with folks who are in need of um some more uh deeper help Mm. deeper assistance um, so I found it was quite interesting to see that actually the folks that we would consider to be really high, high performing, high functioning humans, really successful, many, many, many people describe, particularly imposter syndrome, although we're now getting a more nuanced view of what self-doubt looks like. It's more than just uh, feeling like an imposter. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole kind of body of emotions and feelings and uh, images and uh, body sensations, thoughts and stories that kind of go on in our experience of self-doubt. Uh, so I, I, I'm kind of convinced that it is a universal human experience. In fact, the only folks that do not seem to ever identify with having moments of self-doubt uh, are usually classified as sociopaths, which I find fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's such a, um, a nice way of looking at it as well, because it's kind of like, I'm feeling self-doubt. It's okay. I'm not a psychopath. Like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're good. I'm okay. You're, I'm a good person. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why do you think we've, we all feel so much self-doubt? Well, it's a it's a fantastic question, right? It feels like a design flaw in our in our human experience. Like, isn't there a point where we just get over this? Uh, what how I've come to understand self doubt is that it is the the experience that's quite specific to each person, and it's the experience that occurs as we are embarking on some sort of psychological risk. So usually that is about creativity or it's about connection. Um, These are the sort of two very fundamental parts of our human experience. We we create, that's how we are the the dominant species on the planet. We're very good at problem solving, at innovation, at uh, inventing new things. And so our our kind of... um, our survival depends on our ability to create. And, of course, we do it because creation is amazing, right? It feels so good to be making something new. Uh, and we also need to connect. We're a very social species. We, we survive in groups. So those two, those that, that creation and, uh, and connection are the two kind of pillars of our experience as humans. Whenever we take um, take steps towards something that puts either of those two things at risk, we will usually have some sort of experience of like an alarm going off in us. And it can it can be a, a voice in your head, it can be um, it can be body sensations, a sort of feeling of a something in the pit of your stomach. Uh, it can it can be uh, some emotions that come up. It can be memories of the past or projections into the future. And, and all of those, that, that kind of uh, experience, that, that phenomenon of, of what 
you ha- what happens when you start to make moves towards those risks. Uh, that all serves as a sort of alarm that says this is dangerous. What you're doing has risk attached to it. And I think for those of us who are not actually doing anything that's particularly risky to the species, i.e. we might be making beautiful jewellery, right, or mm. writing blog posts or, uh, you know, working as a policy advisor, for example, just to give some examples, the risks we're taking are, are quite personal to us and they're about our sense of safety and belonging. So so while there is a kind of common human experience around connection and creation, it's how that gets internalised within us, what our experience has been, particularly as children, but also in our formative relationships, that's what kind of determines how we respond to those psychological risks. And often what will happen is we'll find that rather than make the jewellery, we'll, we'll suddenly be interested in getting all of the laundry done <laughs> or watching a box set. Or if we're in an office situation, it will be, actually, I think what I'll do is organise my email. You know, So, so we kind of, we, we use these very useful tactics like procrastination, like waiting until we feel ready, perfectionism, um, kind of, passively watching from the sidelines, never quite going for the promotion, even though we deeply want it. We'll do those things to keep ourselves safe. So for me, self-doubt is a, is a kind of inbuilt protection mechanism. And I think that that is what we're actually experiencing, although the, the kind of outward-facing side of it is, is us, you know, kind of covered in Doritos on the sofa. <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's so interesting, and it goes back a bit to um, what you said earlier, and also the, I mean the general theme of this podcast of doing things a bit differently. And you said how um, when you were working in that corporate situation, you had that ladder in front of you, and you knew where you were going, and you knew what each rung was, and there were very um, obvious and very clear um, sort of definitions of success, and you just kind of had to follow on from there. Um, and I was looking over your, um, blog and your website in sort of preparation and something really kind of stood out for me is that you say at one point that we need to believe in ourselves when we're creating something that doesn't exist yet. Um, and I think that the feelings of self-doubt that kind of kick in, um, particularly when you start doing something new and you start doing something different, um, are, I mean, they're, they're really, they're really strong, I think, and they really, they can really hold you back and really hamper you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I personally think that um, the HMRC, our our tax tax services in the UK, should issue capes to anyone who (laughs) ticks the self-employment box. I genuinely believe that the, the act of deciding you are going to build a business out of a heartfelt passion, which is what I think most of us Mm. do uh, when we're starting a business now, uh, I think that is an act of of insanity and it is also the most you know courageous thing that we can do Uh, and and the reason I I say that is because we're basically saying I'm going to sign up for all of the self-doubt that's going to come my way Mm. and a lot of people I talk to who have been in business for a while will say that running their own gig has been the biggest self-development journey they never expected to go on because not only are we kind of creating things that don't exist yet and we're, we're being willing to put them out into the world to be visible 
and we're being visible as ourselves because when we're self-employed, we, we don't have a brand or an organization or a team or something bigger than us to kind of sort of sink into. We're actually saying, hey, this is me. This is my work and I really want to sell it to you. <laughs> right? So it's going to bring up all of our stuff around visibility and around worth and uh, the whole marketing and selling process can feel at odds with this desire to to bring something that's very heartfelt into the world. And of course, it's not at odds at all, right? It's just the story that we're telling ourselves around, you know, if I put a value on this work, does that mean that it will be exclusionary is often the, the biggest kind of barrier. Um, so, so there's lots of stuff that comes up around self-doubt um, when we're when we're doing our own thing, and when we're particularly when we're creating something that has a lot of of risk and and kind of a lot riding on it. Uh, so if you're if you're running your own business, like you're feeding your family based on how profitable you are, that that's a that's a has a lot riding absolutely on it. and I think it's something that I wasn't perhaps quite expecting I mean there are so many there's so much stuff online about and I mean I think there's a lot because I think self-development you're right self-development and creative um entrepreneurship do go very much hand in hand and there's a lot about both of them online and and but it's something that I think is perhaps quite kind of underestimated a lot is that sometimes it's and I know I've I've sort of beat myself up about it a lot in the past and it's like, I know I should be doing this. I know that this is what I need to do in order to grow my business. And I know that this is what everyone's telling me to do, but I don't seem to be able to do it. And mm. I think that that's a, something that quite a lot of, um, that I've definitely felt and a lot of um, the people I've worked with and friends who do similar things have said. Um, and it does feel like you're standing in your own way quite a lot, I think. Yeah, and, and I, I've been increasingly uh, over the last sort of 18 months, two years, been working with uh, creative entrepreneurs because self-doubt is such a massive experience for, for those of us who are, who are running our own businesses. And what I have found is that, you know, there are there's a lot of um, things you can Google when it comes to running a business, you know, mm -hmm. how to set up a mailing list, how to, how to set up a blog, how to be on social media, all of that, all of that is there and available and most of it's free. But what, what can happen between, uh, between reading all of that and then actually taking the steps that are required for us to show up is that our, our self-doubt is starts kicking in and it's usually giving us messages around um, who are you to do this particularly when we're starting out there is that kind of existential mm. doubt of you know is this something I can even do I have the right to do um, but there I think as we evolve there is also uh, in our businesses there is also the you know is this really valuable and oh my god everyone else seems to be doing this now and I'm now working in a really crowded marketplace and it feels like the loudest voices are the only ones being heard and oh I've just looked at such and such as Instagram feed and she has a squillion followers and what's the yeah. bloody point right and all of those voices I think uh, all of those things that we sort of fall fall into that sort of self-doubt loop where we just have this reinforced protection mechanism um, that's saying don't take any risks don't put yourself out there it's it's there's too much at stake um, I think what we're really trying to do is is to keep ourselves safe and that makes so much sense because we are being visible we are taking risks we are putting ourselves out there 
we will be judged, we will be criticised, there will be people who unfollow and unsubscribe and that will Mm. sting. Um, But it only stings for a little while, right? All of those things that happen the first time are tricky and difficult, but I think if you can stick with it, if you can really sink into the reasons why you're doing this work in the first place, and allow that to be sort of your 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 mm. north star for 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 keeping showing up. And for me, it's always been you know I I absolutely believe that the work I'm doing is helping other people. And so even when I'm having like the worst week uh, and doubting myself or feeling like oh what's coming next or you know thinking about when you know where my next kind of income is coming from then it has always been coming back to that quite central point for me of, you know, this work matters and I I care about the potential clients that I'm going to be working with. So I kind of owe it to them to keep Mm. showing. Do you have any other tips for dealing with self-doubt and any other sort of strategies for working through it? Well, what I have found is that there's no sort of once and done approach. Um, And, and there isn't really a foolproof recipe for working through self-doubt. And that's really what um, I, what I, I decided to um, create a program which really looks at this from everyone's individual perspective is what, what is it that is being triggered when you're experiencing self-doubt? What's it holding you back from? And why might that be um, something that feels incredibly risky to you? And I think for a lot of us who didn't grow up in families that particularly valued self-belief or may have confused it with arrogance, um, that most of us were, and particularly women, I think, were uh, advised to kind of stay small because Mm -hmm. that kept you safe. So don't be too much. Don't be too big. Don't be too showy-offy. Don't be too bossy. These are all phrases that kind of can sometimes feel really dangerous to us if we start moving down a path where we are actually going to come face to face with our bigness, our power, our uh, our bossiness, our uh, our big emotions. That I think we we tend to have this built-in mechanism that says, "Hey, just watch what you're doing there. You're going to a place that is dangerous," and it's because we've usually internalised those messages that we had during our formative years. So. You know, for me, it's about helping people to, you know, navigating through self-doubt, I think, is about kind of unlearning a lot of the messages that we get from our families and from our culture as a whole about what is okay for us to do. Um, So there's a lot of unlearning and and sort of deprogramming ourselves. And then as we start to understand that we actually have an immense amount of, um, of power within us to decide how we are going to, uh, to, to, uh, face these challenges that come our way, be them in a self-employed situation or in a, as a creative or in an organisation, uh, we get to decide. And and I think because self-doubt is so personal and so, um, so uh, subjective, it's really about looking backwards to, to understanding where those messages came from and why they have stayed with us. And often that was about fitting in with our families. Um, and, and just recognizing that those are messages that we, 
we have inherited and we can disinherit ourselves. I think what you say about the cultural aspect is really interesting because I think it is something that's quite specific to British culture. This kind of idea of not, of not being too self-confident, not being too much, not having too much self-belief, of kind of always sort of being quite self-deprecating. And I think it is something that's quite insidious. It kind of seeps into you a lot. And I know that in the past, I've definitely sort of toned myself down and sort of been more self-deprecating than perhaps I actually felt, um, because I think it makes me more likable as a person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and New Zealand is, is pretty much a carbon copy as well. So um, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome where you just lop the, the flowers off, the two tall poppies. And it's very it's a very kind of um, ingrained cultural thing. You know, don't get too big for your boots. It's, it's very interesting because I think for most of my life, being likable was like a fundamental quality that was valued wherever I went, in whatever work situation uh, or or kind of you know home or friendship situation. Being likable seemed really bloody important, and I can't tell you how much energy I have expelled on twisting myself in likable knots. Um, and it's a it is a cultural thing, and I think it's particularly imposed on women. We have very a very kind of set uh, established box that we must fit in in order to be okay. And it's really about never offending anyone, you know, by by being a human, um, you know, which is impossible, really. It, it's exactly it's impossible. And I think the more that we question it, and I do think that we are in a very fascinating point in our in our history as um, as the Me Too movement is evolving, as uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, more and more of our kind of cultural establishment-type systems are being questioned, are being mm. sort of seen to be the very flawed and fallible places that, that they are because they were made by humans and often for a very specific set of humans to keep them safe Um, and as we are all kind of going hang on a minute I'm not sure I want my I want my government cabinet to have more millionaires and Etonians in it than women I I don't think that feels good to me that doesn't feel representative to me which is the whole point of our government cabinet so we're starting to say actually is there another way we can do this and it will be slow and messy and and probably quite um, volatile as we work that out. Um, But I think on a personal level, we're also questioning, you know, actually, is it okay for me to just charge what I believe my work is worth? Is it okay for me to um, have a political uh, voice as much as I have a, um, a work and a uh, and a home voice, you know, am I, am I allowed to play on the, at, at those tables? And I think the more that we allow ourselves to expand and to be more than just these labels, uh, you know, to be very nuanced and complex beings, um, to not fall into the trap of, of well, I'm just this, uh, we can actually expand all the different places that we get to play and that creates more places that we can try things out. So we're not putting a ton of uh, a ton of risk in one area of our lives. We're kind of spreading it across a number of different places. Um, and that can sometimes help us to just show up in different places to, to, to see who we are when we're there uh, and, and to start that 
that process of sort of unlearning and deprogramming, being really open, listening to what is being said and seeing what just lands with us is, um, is great. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's a theme that's come up in a lot of the interviews I've done of people really wanting to have more well-rounded lives, of not just wanting to pursue one thing and not wanting to be defined by one thing, but wanting to kind of, you know, be a great wife and great friend and great mother and run their own business and have hobbies and do lots and lots of different things rather than just solely going after one thing and letting that be their, um, their sort of yardstick of success. Yeah, I and I I personally think that that's probably how we are designed to be. Like I I don't know of many people that stay in a job for in one job for a really long time and feel their soul come alive every day. You know, so <laughs> we're all kind of looking for places where we can feel alive. Um, and and I think allowing that for ourselves is fantastic. It means we we have a lot less screen time. I think that's also a really positive thing. Um, but there's something about uh, a, a, almost a backlash against technology or perhaps using mm. it for, in different ways. So there's no doubt that, I mean, I still remember life before the internet. Um, you know, I, I was... I remember getting an email for the first time when I was at university. So, you know, I've seen that that shift that has utterly revolutionised, you know, how we show up to, particularly to our careers and to our and to our different kinds of work. And I think that the technology is enabling us to do all of these different things, to work in a virtual way, to to leverage um, the technology to help support our businesses. But it can also be the thing that kind of drives us down the compare and despair road. So, so mm. it's about kind of having that nuanced relationship with it. But I think you're right. It does uh, that certainly just having the ability to live where we want, to live in, uh, you know, to kind of be location independent, means that we do get to have lives that aren't set in stone, that don't have a script to them. Um, we get to kind of forge our own paths, and I think that's incredibly exciting. And incredibly scary at the same time. <laughs> it can be, yeah, it can be. Both okay. of those. Um, so do you now live in Bristol, is that right? I do, yes. Yeah, how come you decided to, were you in London before then? I uh, I lived in London uh, for a, quite a long time. And then when I set up my business about seven years ago, uh, we decided that we couldn't really afford to live in London and to support me as a kind of to have such a cut in my salary and so we moved out to Berkshire to a, a new build development where there was all the houses looked um it was a bit Edward Scissorhands you know all the houses looked the same and I found that um that was perfect because we could afford to buy a house and uh, it meant that I could set up my business so for that reason it was perfect but um I really missed having a community and so we sort of thought okay well we, both my husband and, and and I went back to university and this is what happens when you are curious beings but you don't have children <laughs> so we both went and did our master's degrees in our in our late 30s and um and once we gra both graduated we decided that would be the time that was right for us to move and so Bristol's always felt to me like a little bit of um this sort of quiet underdog um mm. And I know that it won some Sunday Times Sunday supplement thing about the best place to live. And there was actually a campaign in Bristol 
called Make Bristol Crap Again. And it was to try and discourage Londoners from to move there, which I loved. Um, but yeah, there is a real, um, there's an amazing coffee cafe culture in Bristol and a real respect for um, the food chain. Like I found there's so many like vegan and vegetarian and um, kind of whole food type uh, places which I really love. And there's a real kind of history of dissent and, um, you know, kind of putting the f- two fingers up to London, which which just really strikes me as, um, as it's still embedded, I think, in, in the city. And it also has a really problematic history as well. You know, Bristol is the site of a lot of um, slave ownership in, yeah. in the UK and because it's a port town. Um, so I'm kind of interested in getting to know these different sides to Bristol, but um, but it, it's surprising to both of us just how at home we feel here. It's possibly because we're from Wellington in New Zealand. That's where Ash and I met. And it's also a harbour city with lots of hills and wooden houses and um, a real kind of uh, self-employed culture, cafe culture. So all of that just feels very familiar to us, which is which is great. Yeah, it's really it's a city actually. I'm really keen to get to know a bit more now. I live a lot closer to it. Um, yeah. I love that they did a make Bristol crap again campaign. I can kind of see that coming here because Froome was just um, this year was named the best place in the southwest to live, um, right. and I can kind of see that backlash coming here as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think you know that's one of the things we've been really quite um, sort of it feels quite uncomfortable is the the homelessness in Bristol is is really quite stark and that's always been a a sort of bit of a passion for me ever since I came to the UK I was always very shocked at how um at how on you know in your face homelessness is and how many people are homeless and so yeah we've sort of been been interested in how we can you know help support different charities that are working with homeless um folks that uh um are around here but it, it is a, a really cool place to kind of put our roots down and we've bought this 125 year old house that is in need of substantive renovation which is very overwhelming um, but it feels like a really fun project oh wow is so is it homeless charities that your um, t-shirt support uh, no that's actually for uh for a couple of different charities that work with young people uh, to help them cultivate self-esteem. So uh, the self-esteem team and uh, back home in New Zealand, the Graham Dingle Foundation. Oh, fantastic. I think they're so great. I was saying um, just before we started recording this, I said, oh, I really need to get one because um, I think they're so they're so fun. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just um, decided last year I had a, a really good year financially and I, and I sort of hit an income goal that felt really significant. And I thought the first thing I'm going to do once I hit that is to create some sort of social enterprise. And so this is really um, the My Courageous Selfie Project. Is, uh, I've just had some T-shirts designed, five original T-shirt designs, and all, 100% of the profits are going to be shared between the self-esteem team and Graham Dingle Foundation. Because um, my work isn't with, with kids or teens, it's with adults, but um, but I just love what they do, and I think that there's a lovely synergy there. So um, it's it's a it's a fun project, and I'm loving reading everybody's notes to the younger selves. So the idea is you buy a t-shirt, and then you write a note to yourself on social media about what you wish you had heard when you were growing up. Um, and people have been emailing me and saying, "Oh my god, I'm in tears. I'm a wreck. I've just been reading the hashtag messages, you know, and and how kind of." 
quite tender and compassionate we can all be to our younger selves. Um, so I'm hoping that if people are having a bad day, they'll go go find that my courageous selfie hashtag and have a little read. I'm, I'm going straight there after we finish recording. Um, so <laughs> before um, I let you go, um, so what, what has been the hardest thing for you about living life a little differently? Without a doubt, I think it's the loneliness mm. um, of being self-employed, uh, which has been a really interesting journey for me. It has, it has had great and not so great parts to it. I think when I have experienced um, the most self-doubt, which, I, which we know through the research is, is exacerbated by loneliness. So when we feel alone and we start to experience self-doubt, it almost acts as a kind of reinforcing uh, a reinforcing mechanism uh, that has certainly been my experience and there has been times when I just thought god this is so hard I just don't know what to do and I feel all alone in it um, but the other part of that is that it has forced me to be innovative around that like okay so you're feeling lonely and you're being alone so <laughs> perhaps we can figure out a way through this and so I've I've um I've forced myself in lots of ways even when it's the least thing that I feel like doing to connect with other people and I have a lot of friends who and colleagues who work in the states and so I have um, a, a group of coaches that we get together once a month and support each other and we we have this kind of like very informal and unpaid mastermind kind of function which has been an amazing source of um just support and solace over over the last sort of couple of years that we've been going. So massive shout out to Ellie and Jack if you're listening. <laughs> um, and I have uh, some other pals that I've just worked with or collaborated with who we just get each other and it's lovely to connect. So I make sure that I have those regular meetups um, on Skype. Um, and I also have, uh, you know, made myself – create opportunities in my work where I'm going out into the world. So I have a, a, a one-day workshop now where I just um, gather together sort of a dozen, couple of dozen women and we spend the day looking at looking at some self-doubt stuff. And it has proven to be one of my favourite ways of exploring this work. And I just love running that workshop. Um, so, so while loneliness has been this kind of awful thing, it has also led me to some really quite lush places in in both my work and and in the the support of my work that's really great um and what has been the best thing for you I think undoubtedly for me uh freedom the the freedom to create what I want to make decisions all the time without asking for permission um that utter autonomy over my own time even though it's an ongoing process for me to remember that I can actually not work um you know it's okay to go to an afternoon movie <laughs> that, that still feels like I'm playing hockey uh but I think just having that autonomy to be able to organize my day in the way that feels good to me is something that I never ever take for granted and I think it has actually made me unemployable now like there is no way that I could go back into an office environment where I feel like someone's looking at their watch mm. when I walk in uh, so so I've, that has allowed me to sort of play to my own strengths as well, like to recognize that, you know, I do my best creative thinking quite early in the morning, um, that I need some downtime in the middle of the day. And I'll quite often have a bit of a sort of resurgence of energy around four or five o'clock. And so, you know, so I'm allowing myself to just kind of um, 
work to those strengths, work to the the natural rhythms of my day and not try and feel like, you know, it's got to be a kind of nine to five experience. Um, so that, that autonomy is without a doubt the number one thing. I think it's, and it's so worth it, right? It's so worth all the other stuff. I, to I completely it. agree. I, mean, I don't think I could ever have a boss again. I think I would just find it, it way, way too difficult. And for me, it's getting out in the winter when we have really short um, sunlight hours. It's For me, it's getting out in the middle of the day for a walk and being able to actually see the sun yeah. during the day. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, we, we um, just a year ago... Um, invited a, a very young bouncy puppy into our lives and Bodhi our dog is is proven to be just such a source of joy and sometimes frustration <laughs> but um but but having him around and knowing that he is a creature and he needs a ton of play and he needs exercise and he needs sleep as well it's been such a lovely reminder for me to to get out every day to play in the park with him and make sure he does you know he he gets his playtime so I get to have playtime too um so yeah I completely agree there's something about just that freedom to go for a walk when the sun is out or when it's light even um that that makes you incredibly reluctant to ever go back to a situation where your time is not your exactly. own. Um, Sass, thank you so, so much for talking to me today. You're so wise. And I just think that the work that you're doing is so fantastic and so necessary and so valuable for so many people. Like everything that you've said today, I've just been nodding along and being like, yes, that's why, that's why. So thank you. <laughs> thank you just so much for talking to me. That's my absolute pleasure. I loved it. Thank, thank you. so much for listening two more things i'd absolutely love it if you could rate review and subscribe to this podcast if you are enjoying it it really does help and secondly please do also subscribe to my newsletter letter and notes i send it every monday morning and it includes a short essay from me about my own experience in living life a little differently and in running a thoughtful and creative business you can subscribe and find out more about the work that i do on my website www.fianabowers.com until next time